Okay, hello again. We're glad you could join us today or tomorrow. This is Jim Lowenstern, and the show is Broker Talk, and I'm here broadcasting the show today. Hi, from the top of the Castles Unlimited Space Needle in Boston, Massachusetts, with my co-host, Larry Lawfer. Evan is running the board. How are you doing today, Larry? We are doing great, or I'm doing great, and all my personalities are, too. How are you doing, Evan? Evan gives a thumbs up good, on that. Good, good to hear. Okay, so we have a guest today. We're, Larry, you I've, want to introduce? Sure, Jim. Thanks. Uh, we're very lucky to have uh, the uh, GreenPhoenixDev.com owner, uh, Steve Snyder. He's got a uh, certificate in sustainable residential design, and he's really focused on all of the leading technologies on how to keep your home, um, especially the older homes that exist here in, in our part of the country in the Northeast, uh, viable. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Larry. I'm interested in uh, what you're doing with these new homes. Could you give me a little background in, in how you got started with Green Phoenix and what it means to you? Absolutely. I, I spent my career working in finance, and during that time I've lived in Massachusetts. I owned a succession of older homes, which were all very interesting, but which always seemed to have some flaw or something that made them uh, not, not work properly. And I got to thinking, I have an undergraduate degree in engineering, why couldn't we introduce some of the building science and modern technology into these homes while preserving the character and uh, the architectural style of the older homes? And that led me to set up Green Phoenix Development a couple of years ago with the idea of marrying technology and building science to produce better quality, more durable, and more efficient homes. Well, I know, Steve, that most people, when they hear uh, green design and sustainability, they're thinking uh, only of uh, perhaps solar panels or more efficient heating and air conditioning systems. But it's far more than that, isn't it? It is. Sustainability or green building is kind of in the eye of the beholder, but in terms of what we consider it, it means first the just a better quality construction. It means designing in advance to make the home less susceptible to risks like flooding or ice dams. Uh, obviously, it includes energy efficiency. A big thing that no one considers is the health of the home itself, healthy indoor air quality, the materials that go into the house, the filtration systems that go into the house. And then it also means, in my mind, building to the best that building science can offer now. And by that, I mean making sure that you don't do things that will make the building degrade in the next 10 or 15 years. It means building way beyond what the code requires. So I happen to know that you were uh, born and raised in California, living here on the East Coast now. Our homes are much older uh, and so the walls are thicker and all of that. And you talked about the construction. You're not constructing from, from ground up. You're taking our older buildings and making them healthier and so for happier people living in those healthy homes. Well, I have nothing against new home construction with, that's built to these high sustainability standards. Um, if I were building a home for myself from scratch, it's absolutely what I would do. But... We do have a huge stock of older homes here. Many of them have not been touched in a long time. They're very inefficient, but they also have a great deal of architectural character that you don't see in a lot of just 
new houses that go up very quickly. And the goal with Green Phoenix was to try to blend these the modern technology and what we know about how to make homes durable, but to retrofit it into these older homes that would otherwise be torn down and that are really, they, they form the basis of the neighborhoods that we live in. So it's kind of, a, it's a challenge to do that. It's more complicated than just building from scratch on an empty lot, but I think that the result is better. Well, it certainly seems to be better in the in the uh, homes that I'm familiar with. Uh, I know you have one on the market right now, Highland Avenue out in Weston. Can you talk about that project for a moment? Yeah, so this was this is the first project I've done really from the ground up with the idea that this was going to be a very sustainable, very healthy, very durable home, but well suited for the way families live nowadays. Um, my design team and I found, a 120-year-old farmhouse in Weston that the owners that it had two owners since the 1930s was in need of serious maintenance, um, but which was a really appealing home on a great piece of property and a very simple design, very simple wood frame, uh, really lent itself well to renovation as opposed to tear down and and start new, which is unfortunately the habit too often in our in our culture and in this area. So the design team and I um, found the house, went through almost 10 months of permitting with the town of Weston, and came up with a design to expand this house while keeping the New England vernacular farmhouse style, but to make it into a modern, efficient home while honoring the vestiges of the, the Victorian farmhouse that it was. I was impressed uh, when, uh, after talking to you about this, I went and got my green designation, which is a designation from the National Association of Realtors, about all of the uh, specifics of what green des- uh, what green building is. Um, can you talk about some of the specifics from from the envelope in? Yeah, so so the, the objectives of the home were to build a home that was certainly better quality with lower operating costs, but to also build an efficient, healthy, and durable home. Um, we decided to pursue a number of um, building certifications to document that, to show that we were building to a standard that far exceeds the code. So, for example, the home is certified under the LEED program. That's L-E-E-D, Leadership in Energy and, 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 and Environmental Design. And that's the largest green building program in the U.S. The home is certified under Energy Star. It also has certifications for air, indoor air quality. We started with building the most energy efficient and airtight envelope we could. Um, in the new construction pieces, that meant building from scratch. But that also meant on the older home, um, finding the proper insulation techniques to make the house airtight and very well insulated. We went to great lengths for the interior air quality in terms of using materials that don't off-gas formaldehyde or chemicals. All of these materials came through a certification program, something like Floor Score or uh, Green Stamp or others that, that uh, I'm sorry, Green Score, that, that make sure that the materials have been tested. Uh, we put an extensive ventilation system in. We used very high efficiency air source heat pumps throughout the house and a heat pump water heater throughout for that home's heating, oh, hot water distribution to try and remove combustible gases out of the house to try and make the home energy efficient, to try and make it very comfortable with even distribution of temperatures and to make it very durable so that it's not going to be susceptible to power outages or t- uh, uneven temperatures and so on. 
Can I ask a couple questions? Please. Okay, great. Um, so, Steve, the um, let's let's talk about the actual process of getting certified. D does that add to the cost of the project? It does in several ways. There's obviously certification costs themselves. You have to pay a the, the Green Building Council, USGBC, for certification. You have to pay your lead rater. But beyond that, there are also costs associated first with building to a higher level of insulation, for example, or in using materials that would not normally be used. For example, there's no requirement that I put the, the uh, energy recovery ventilator system in or one that's as extensive. Then there is a lot of design, um, I won't say costs, but additional design. We used an integrated project design to make sure that everything went into the building initially rather than design it and then try to fit different components into it once the structure was done we brought the whole design team in early on and that way we could make sure that we balanced heating loads versus insulation package versus um, all of the other design parameters but that obviously increases the complexity and the cost so this particular project that you're talking about was marrying an older home 120 years with new construction is the insulation package the same in both sides? It is essentially. The, um, the older home, the entire home is framed, um, standard wood framing, and then has exterior insulation. And then the interior of the home is insulated with mineral wool, spray applied mineral wool. And in the older home, we actually furred out the, in, the old two by four walls so we could get the same insulation levels. So the in terms of differences in insulation or construction, the old and the new pieces are very indistinguishable. We strip the house down to its studs. So you use um, wool rather than uh, spray foam? Right, there is some spray foam in the house. We use that in the basement, underneath the slab and in the, on the um, insulated wall, on the uh, concrete walls. And it forms a watertight bathtub, if you will, so that the home is very impervious to water infiltration from below and it helps prevent radon from coming in. The walls of the home are what's called spray applied mineral wool. So it's like mineral wool, it looks like cellulose, but it has advantages as a mineral wool. It's not combustible, it's not, you know, in, it's insect re resistant, um, it's totally inert, um, so it doesn't have health effects. And this was a new, it's been used commonly commercially, it's fairly new in the residential space. Um, so we used mineral wool, we used cellulose in the roof, we used whatever was the most appropriate insulation to obtain the R value we wanted at the lowest cost, depending on what assembly we were looking at. Okay, and can you talk about the hot water uh, system, domestic, and, and also the heating system? Yes, yeah, so the hot water system, I, I'm actually very proud of the way this turned out. I'm very happy with it. So I worked with a consultant on the West Coast I met at a building science conference a few years ago who's published a number of journals on how to optimize hot water distribution so you don't wait for hot water no matter where in the house you are. This was a little bit of a stretch to get my plumbing contractor to follow this, but we've installed a distribution system which is energy efficient and not running all the time, but which provides hot water very quickly through three major zones through the house. The hot water heater itself is a heat pump water heater, which means it works like a heat pump. So it, instead of making heat, it just collects heat from the air and heats the water. It operates about three times more efficiently than an electric water heater. So we have an electric storage tank, which almost never runs, and then the heat pump water heater for the heavy duty heat water heating. Um, the, electric, the heating system is air source heat pump, 
we're using a Mitsubishi system. Um, air source heat pumps had a bad reputation years ago. The technology has improved immeasurably. Um, these systems can provide heating all the way down to 17 below zero, and there's an auxiliary heating element built into in just in case. But they provide um, very, again, as a heat pump, they're transferring heat, not creating heat. So they operate at two or three times more efficient levels than a standard heating system. Steve, we could talk about this for hours, and we uh, possibly have you come back, and we'll do one just on this. Well, I'm not, I'm not totally done yet. <laughs> I have more questions. Uh, please. So, so the additional costs to get it certified at this point, uh, that this house is on the market for millions of dollars, what did that add to the cost? That's a challenging question because it's very hard to dissociate um, the additional cost of renovating the older house. It's, it was all kind of integrated. My best estimate would be perhaps 10% of the cost of the property is in improvements which go over and above to, to achieve, achieve the house we had. Those weren't all required for lead certification, of course. So this, I guess I'll rephrase the question. You, you have experience in doing this to get this, the certification itself adds to the cost. Do you have enough knowledge <clears throat> to, do this, to do this on your own without the certification and give the buyer all the benefits of basically the same house without the certification? Yes, I do, but I will, uh, you know, I, I am opposed to that. I mean, I'm, I understand the, the question um, I think that certification has a great deal of value in the marketplace in two ways. One is empirically there are studies which suggest that homes that have certifications, either LEED or some Energy Star or some other green building program, do in fact sell at a premium to a similar comparable property. But second, I kind of feel that if you're going to go to the efforts to produce, to do all of this, it's a matter of disclosure for the homeowner. I can say whatever I want about what I put into the house, but unless a third party independent raider has verified it, the homeowner doesn't really have to take my word for it. Okay. And there's different levels of certification. There's like silver and gold and platinum. Yeah, so in the, in the LEED program, there are four levels of certification, exactly right, starting at certified, bronze, sil or silver, gold, and platinum. Um, this home has certified platinum, which means it scored over 80 points out of 110 possible. Some certifications, there's no threshold. It's like Energy Star certification, which this home is, is it's a go or no go. You meet all of the requirements of three or four checklists that concern the building envelope, the appliances, the air tightness, and air ducts. And when you meet those requirements, the home is certified. Same thing with the Indoor Air Plus or Zero Energy Ready. But LEED and the some equivalent ones from the National Association of Home Builders do have different levels based on the performance. And is Energy Star totally different? That's just appliances and systems? Energy Star is not, actually. Everyone knows the Energy Star brand because it's a very common, recognizable consumer brand, that blue Energy Star on appliances. An Energy Star home it does not exist only because it has Energy Star appliances. Energy Star is a series of four checklists, a water management checklist, which requires certain things about the envelope and basement construction, a heating and air conditioning design checklist, a duct sealing checklist, and then a commissioning checklist. And each of those checklists 
is anywhere from 15 to 30 items and each of those checklists has to be completed by an independent rater as well before the home can be certified Energy Star. So it, it really is not just certifying that the home has Energy Star appliances, but that it in fact will be more water resistant, use at least 10% less energy than a code built house, and meet certain air quality requirements. Okay, so my final question has to do with the landscaping. I, I noticed on your website something about drought resistant, heat resistant, whatever, grass. We're talking about the lawn. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So the part of both lead is, is one of the many, there are eight major categories of credits in lead, you know, air quality, water quality, energy efficiency, location, and so on. Um, the sustainability of the site where the home is located is an important measure. Um, in our case, we wanted to use native or adaptive plants, so the landscape architect only used plants that are indigenous or adapted here, so they don't have extreme water or fertilizing requirements. And I'm using a new grass, um, it's not new, it's been around for several years, called Pearls Premium, which is a locally developed hybrid. And it's distinguished because it has a deeper root system. It consists of native grasses, which have been bred to produce a thicker grass, which requires less watering, less fertilizing, and less mowing. Um, I've not used this before. It has been used on other lead projects, and the idea is that it require essentially no fertilizer once it's established and minimal watering and minimal mowing. So it reduces the inputs that are necessary to maintain a lawn, but it provides the benefits of a really thick lawn. Can homeowners buy that seed, or it has to be hydro seeded? Oh no, you can you can buy it. Uh, I didn't come prepared with the information. It's called Pearls Premium, and um, Jackson Maddock is the um, is the proprietor and developer. It's locally here in Wayland, Mass, and um, I'm not sure whether it's sold. I know it's through the website. You may be able to find it. You used to be able to find it at Whole Foods in like three pound bags, um, and you can certainly order it in larger quantities. We we actually ordered it and hydro seeded for the lawn because we were seeding an entire property. Um, but you can certainly just plant it any place. And I would say look at his website for the instructions. Pearls Premium. Less mowing. That sounds great. Less mowing. Less, less water. water. And no fertilization, and, really. And no no which fertilization. Is no, once it's established, you should not be required to fertilize it. No you crabgrass, may, no clover, no... Check with me in a year after the lawn is established. <laughs> but no, I, I've, looked at the, I've looked at other properties that he has, that he has done um, or that his seed has been used on and have been very impressed with them. Um, I won't guarantee there will never be dandelions or crabgrass. I'm simply telling you that the properties I have seen have looked really good and... Yes, it should. It forms a thicker root system, which tends to keep other weeds. Do you away. still put an irrigation system in? I did because um, yes, there's an irrigation system primarily for the lawn um, because once you've put, there will be periods. It's, it, it is a drought resistant. It is not drought proof. Right. You know, and in this climate, you can get periods where you go a month or two without water, and you have hot days. And yes, it does need it does need water. Um, I hope that it will not need that much. We have a well system at the house in Weston for that. Weston does not allow municipal water use for um, for irrigation. So we have a well which irrigates the lawn and some of the other planting beds. Interesting. This has been uh, so enlightening. Steve, thank you again for coming in. Really appreciate you sharing your insight. Thank you both very much for having yep. me in today. Thank you, Steve. So, Jim, it's been a big week in real estate once again, hasn't it? Uh, yeah. 
Love it. We have the uh, CEO of Caldwell Banker uh, saying that uh, they are no longer going to be a traditional agency, that uh, tradition has changed in real estate. I think the quote is, I think the characterization of traditional and non-traditional is sort of a paradigm that doesn't really apply anymore. We've been talking about that since our first show. What are they, throwing in the towel? Say that again? Are they throwing in the towel? Well, I think they're changing towels. Okay. <laughs> which, which towel is this? They're not traditional? They're not non-traditional? They're just saying... Well, you know that they redid their, their logo. And the franchise, and we've been talking about this since day one, franchises are set up to keep the franchise set up. They're not necessarily uh, built to uh, make agents better. I haven't seen that new logo anywhere except online yeah. in that article. My theory on that is uh, it is the ugliest logo since, <laughs> uh, uh, well, dare I say Weikert's. Uh, I didn't say that. But um, I, I can't believe they're going to actually use it. So may, maybe that's not part of the story. Yeah, it wasn't part of the story in Inman that I just read. But interestingly enough, indie or independent uh, uh, agencies versus franchises, those numbers are changing right now. Uh, NAR reports that 54% of the realtors are affiliated with independent, not affiliated anymore with franchises. Um, Again, my point about franchises is they're in it for themselves. Tell, Tell me that number again. 54% of realtors are affiliated with an independent non-franchise brokerage. Versus what would that number have been any other year? It was always more, uh, franchises always had more than 50%. So they're losing uh, losing market share. So when we're talking about franchises, we're not talking about EXP, Redfin, Compass. Correct, we are not. Those are... Those are uh, those are different uh, different entities. Okay, and that's part a part. Of, I wonder if hybrids like Ravis are included in that because they do have franchises. Well, Ravis would be included in that uh, because they are a franchise. But would it only be the franchisees that are counted versus the company owned? You know far more like, about this like, than I do. Like Weikert, I brought them up. They have a lot of company owned, and then they have franchisees. Right. I would think because, you know, it's like a dunk. Who, who, who wrote this article? This was written, uh, it, it showed up on Inman. I don't okay. have the actual right. writer's name, but it was. It, it's on this week's uh, Inman News. Um, we, did, we did get some uh, mail this week. Oh, I'd love to hear that. Oh. I love these letters. Okay. So um, Greg Burnett of Delray Beach, Florida asks, I see online websites that have broker sales stats and reviews. Should I pick a broker based on those metrics or some other way? What do you think? What do you think, Larry? I think that people choose agents not ever based on their agency, not often based on their reputation, but based on what it feels like in the living room when they're talking to them. Do they like and trust the individual? Do they feel the individual has the skills necessary? And frankly, I don't think many uh, individuals who aren't in this business know what the skills are, but they work with people they like and trust. What's your thought? Um, 
I, I think all the information that's out there can be taken into account, but uh, I think it is um, in many ways a personality contest. And um, I think they should just look at maybe um, speaking to some of their friends and see who they've used and had success with. I absolutely think the the referral is the the biggest part of it, and and people will go to people. They'll also drive down their street, and if they see someone's sign in two or three houses near their house, they may in fact go and and talk to that person. I don't know. It, uh, uh, there are statistics that that have said that clients uh, sellers will will hire the first person that talks to them. I have never found that to be true. Our, should, I think it's usually the last person but because by then they have enough information to make a decision and they communicate what they're looking for to the broker and they just understand um, and that an educated seller is the seller they want to deal with. Oh, absolutely. And I firmly have always believed people do not want to be sold anything. They want reasons to buy. And if you as an agent are out there not giving people reasons, specific reasons about why you can help them, then they are not going to choose you. Okay. Broker Talk is sponsored today by Castles Unlimited, where you get the best real estate offers. Online, go to castlesunlimited.com for all your real estate needs. Any other news? Well, there's no more news, but I wanted to talk for a moment about reputation. Uh, we, we're talking about reputation of real estate agencies. Uh, agents individually have reputations, but that whole idea of reputation in our society right now is being altered. Fake news is becoming real news because there's enough people that want to believe it. Somebody can say something about you, and it can be spread, and then that becomes the truth, whether it's the truth or not. This is, this is hurting all of us. We need to understand specifically why we like or don't like something. And reputation is an estimation of a person and how it's held, especially in the community and, and the public in general. Very true. That's why the NAR has uh, standards and practices, and uh, we're not supposed to be talking about our competition. We're not supposed to be talking about other individual agents, especially trashing them. And yet, you know, we know uh, that happens on a daily basis. We've recruited people, and they've said, no, I'm not coming. And you say, why you're not coming? And it's because of your reputation. And, and we try and drill down on that. They have no specific information just a feeling, something they heard from someone. Um, and yet we have had people come here because of our reputation, and I think that, in fact, is growing. We are a place where you can grow your business. Oh, interesting. Okay. You know, we're not going to talk about the lawsuit? Uh, the, the, uh, yeah. Lawsuit the, of the week? There's a new lawsuit. There's always a new lawsuit. So Realogy uh, is now suing Compass. Um and they, Compass set out to own 20% of the market share. Compass has uh, financing uh, that is deep pockets. Uh, deep pockets ultimately get empty as well. Uh, Compass is, is spending a great deal of money to own 
market share in the cities they want to. And Realogy is upset about it. It's saying it's trying to reach its desired ends. It steals, it torturously interferes with, and disparages its competitors. Hmm. Should be interesting. Can't wait. Another lawsuit is in in North Carolina where the Keller Williams agents are being sued because of their uh, mojo calls and their um, uh, uh, texts going out to people, uh, including the do not call list and everything. And uh, if anybody uh, listening here is a Keller Williams agent, you know you've sat in rooms with the BOLD program and you could have 300 people in the BOLD program all handed the same Red X sheet and there's a period of time in that program where you have to call. So everybody in that room is calling the same people. That's just flat out annoying. Hmm. Well, uh, AT&T today says they're going to cut out uh, all the robocalls. Thank God. So uh, they're, the, they're the first carrier. Uh, they absolutely are. So uh, Broker Talk is a weekly podcast hosted by real estate industry professionals and always dedicated to telling it like it is. We appreciate your time. We are uh, here every week. This is Jim. And this is Larry. And we're signing off today, and we'll um, hopefully see you next week.